The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. Hello, welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. This episode is the audio file from a lecture that I did at the Theosophical Society of Perth a couple of years ago. They invited me to do talks on relict hominoid hypothesis. Uh, I won't go into that now because that's what the entire podcast is about. I do urge you, if you're interested in this, to, in the show notes, follow the link to the Octarine Tree YouTube channel where I've actually created a slideshow associated with this lecture, this talk. Pretty interesting. The graphics really help. They're very good visual aids. I've actually created a, a series on crypto hominology on YouTube, all based on different lectures I've done at the Theosophical Society. I was invited back a couple of times and I kind of expand upon the greater topic. I think they're pretty cool. Some of them are quite long, an hour and a bit each. There's a, a couple of short ones, I believe worth a look. Um, I find this topic really, really fascinating. It, it first came to me, uh, I was living up in Broome some years ago now, and it was only relatively shortly after the discovery of the Homo floresiensis skeletons on the island of Flores had been made, and there was a, a, um, a magazine cover, and the cover featured a forensic and artistic reconstruction of what they believe one of these little diminutive hairy hominid species may have looked like, and I had befriended a bunch of uh, indigenous Australians up in Broome and hanging out, and I was reading this magazine and I showed him the front cover and he said, oh yeah, we got those guys here out in the deep country where, where we don't really go anymore. And he was very insistent that these things were real. And that was the first moment where my already long-term and very strong, albeit amateur, interest in paleoanthropology became linked to this idea of the, the crypto-hominology and the idea of these relict hominoid cryptids, Sasquatch, Yeti, Ibu Gogo, Orang Pangdek, Yowie, etc., etc. It was the first moment I'd really, you know, thought about it, to be honest. I don't remember even thinking about it beforehand, other than, you know, being a little kid and seeing the Patterson Gimlin film on Ripley's Believe It or Not, or whatever it was. It entered my head, I was like, wow, maybe it's maybe it's scientifically plausible that there just might be a relict population of these species one of these many potential species around the world years later you know i have i've done my fair share of research and study and looking and exploring into it and i've also spent a great deal of time in the southwest australian bush living in the woods in the forest and you know really meditating on what it means to me it became quite an important kind of totemic subject an image symbol amongst other things a beyond beyond symbol as well but in part symbol what is the symbol what is the totemic symbolism of this wild man that we see around the world and there's actually a, a whole uh, video dedicated to that subject so i won't go into it too much now so anyway without further ado this is my talk and associated slideshow on youtube to the introduction to the relict hominoid hypothesis enjoy 
Thank you. Welcome, please. Thank you. Am I on? I'm on. I was just saying earlier, I've, this is the first time I've ever done a public presentation on this particular subject, and I'm now coming to terms with the fact that I am that guy who does public presentations about Bigfoot. During the day for a crust, I'm a regenerative agriculture designer and consultant. Regenerative agriculture is kind of sustainable agriculture, trying to figure out how we're going to feed ourselves and provide all of the human needs that we require while simultaneously regenerating ecological function as well. Very different from this, although it has kind of fostered my appreciation for ecology and anthropology and all those things meld into this subject as well. If I give every slide the uh, time I would like to, I'll be going way over time, so excuse me if I just hop through some that seem a little bit too quick. In, in that little intro, it mentioned the ubiquitousness of this subject, and it is one of those handful of ubiquitous subjects that shared all across the globe. You know, the flood, certain myths from around the world, from the ancients through to now, that there seems to be at least some sort of version of everywhere in every culture. So this is the Yeren in China, so this, this story of these myths, this folklore, these sightings, God, who knows what is actually occurring? I don't claim to, but I find it fascinating. It's from all around the world. There are folklore, myth, story, narrative going back as far as we can take it in all cultures that are associated with it. There's all different names associated with it. Where most people will be familiar with uh, Sasquatch, um, but even throughout North America, there's a number of different kind of colloquial Western European folk names, like the skunk ape. Then there's the Yowie in Australia. Has anyone ever heard of the Yowie before? Right. But from everywhere, all around the world. And there's really, really interesting sightings from the Caucasus region of the world where it has the Almasti and the Alma, which are obviously etymologically associated so yeah, it, it, it is, this is what fascinates me about this, I don't even know what to call it, myth, story, folklore, legend, I, I don't know what it is, because you, you'll see that one of the most amazing things in my opinion about this is this massive disparaging gap between anecdotal evidence and traditional folklore with the lack of forensic evidence. That, to me, is what is so fascinating, um, amongst all the other things as to what it could be and the sightings and the reports and the... What, what, how on earth are there these hundreds of sightings a year from around the world and virtually no forensic evidence, except for the odd you know, footprint or whatnot, which we'll, we'll have a look into? What is going on? And it's all about the data there is more than sufficient evidence to suggest that there is some form of genuine phenomena behind both the antidote and the forensics that justifies a mature inquiry into the possibility of a genuine flesh and blood organism thus far evading modern scientific description. So if that's the case, and there are all different avenues that we could go down to say what this is this thing, but I've chosen to ask this question. If it is, if there is a sliver of a chance that there is a flesh and blood, physical, biological organism out there that behind this phenomena, this anecdote, then what is it? A little bit of history on the story of these anthropomorphic non-humans around the world. Um, has anyone ever heard of Carl Linnaeus? 
Any biologists in the room? Okay. Uh, he was the guy who invented... He was a Swedish chap from the 1700s, and he invented binomial nomenclature, the means by which we define biological organisms in relation to each other. Binomial is two-name nomenclature. So we are homo sapiens. Dogs are canis familiaris. So it's got the genus, genus or general, and the species or specific name. And he, he spent all his time going around trying to organise the natural world into a nice, you know, Western Germanic square box that we now call binomial nomenclature. But he, in his early works, he uh, described these man-like creatures. And back in the day, it was kind of a... It was just almost common knowledge. I mean, I can't say how often sightings occurred or interactions, if there were any. But amongst the kind of the folklore of the people in 1700 Europe, at least, there was this kind of understanding that there were hairy man-like creatures out there. And this is an example of what Linnaeus called anthropomorpha, which was a kind of early version of what we might call primates or hominidae now, which is a clade within primates to which we belong. And he called the, this other species of human Homo troglodytes. Now, he actually also recognised different races or ethnicities within Homo sapiens as well. This wasn't just some kind of like colonial European assholeism, attributing like monstrous characteristics to some lesser race. You know, he, he recognised that there was Homo sapiens and that there were these sub-species or races. Nowadays, that's, that's a whole different category unto itself. But he also recognised that Homo troglodytes was a different type of human, the wild human, often mute, living out in the woods, way tougher than we are. Uh, later on, when the species of chimp the chimpanzee genus, the pan genus, were described, chimpanzees were given the name pantroglodytes in reference to Linna Linnaeus's original classification. And troglodytes now, of course, a troglodyte means like a caveman. So I'm going to be using the words hominid a lot. So very quickly, what is a hominin versus a hominid? So hominids is hominid is short for hom hominoidae, which is this greater family of apes. So the great apes, which are gorillas, which is a couple of species, chimpanzees, bonobos, and the billy ape, which is the pan genus, the orangutans, of which is three or four described species now, which is the pongo, homo genus, of which we belong, and the gibbons as well. So there's the great apes and the gibbons which make up the apes. They're hominids. Hominins refer to humans and our immediate relatives, of which none are uh, considered to be in existence anymore, and it's disputed as to whether chimpanzees are members of that clade or not. So I'm going to talk a lot about hominids in reference to what these... Bigfoot things could be because, frankly, we don't know what they are. So they may be they may be closely associated biologically, genetically, to the immediate human family of hominins. It may be something way broader. There may be a species that had branched off way earlier than that, even before the Pan-Homo uh, genus divide around five or six million years ago, depending on who you ask. A little context as well. 
the Miocene epoch, 23 to 5 million years ago, has been called the planet of the apes. Have you ever noticed how, think of like a local species, like a bird, like honey eaters. There's numerous types of honey eater, you know, They're living in the one locale, all occupying slightly different niches. It's the same with virtually every other clade in biology. It's not just that there are lots of types of bird or lots of types of perching bird, but like honey eaters themselves or wrens, you know, or dogs. You know, there's wolf, there's Canis familiaris, there's Canis dingo, there's the African wild painted dog. There's, it goes on and on and on. Once upon a time, there was way more than the five ape species that we have now. There was dozens of them. They were all over the place from Africa, Europe, and all through the Eurasian continent and into Southeast Asia. As far as we know, there's never been, prior to Homo sapiens arriving, there's never been an ape in Australia or America, north or south, although I think that's going to change in the next few years. Whole different discussion. There's so much I want to cram into this. It's really frustrating. My brain kind of like... Every, every sentence I could unpack ad nauseum. Um, I remember, does anyone remember this book? I grew up with this book. It was the Life Nature Library series, and there was like one on early man and evolution and whatnot. And this was the kind of classic image that I grew up with reading about human evolution, and many people... Uh, I think this came out in the like at least sev- mid-'70s, maybe earlier. But this is the kind of image we were given of this kind of like linear precedent pathway from basically everything looks like some kind of anthropomorphic ape. It just gets more and more modern, you know, as it moves along. And one species dies out as it's taken over by the next more evolved species. That's not the case. The human family tree, which in this image... It looks like a human family stick. It's now recognised as being a bush or a swarm, like all other species, all other genus. Once upon a time, the human genus looked like this. Uh, As of last year, and it's very hard to find the exact number of these, how many species there are, because some people think that, you know, two skulls look slightly different, a different species, but they may be one, and there's a whole discussion. But about 25 species are recognised and suspected that there's at least double that. That hasn't been found in the fossil record. We actually know of other species of hominid, hominin, as well as hominid, outside of the fossil record, so that we know of species that existed. We don't have bones for them because they're inside our DNA. And in sub-Saharan Africans and in Australasians, there are both a ghost species that has been interbred with tens of thousands of years ago of different human species that they're not aware of exactly what they are. So relict hominid. So a relict is a small population that's kind of hanging on from what was once a large population or a diaspora of a number of different populations. Today we actually still have relict hominid species, the great apes. They really are relics of this Miocene diaspora of species, of once, you know, dozens of ape species from around the old world. And they're just hanging on, like it says here, merely relic species in tropical forest refugia are poised on the brink of extinction. They really are, like, they're 
ready to go. There's you know, a few thousand left in the wild at most of any given species. Not that long ago, fast forward from the Miocene, this planet of the apes, where there were no hominins, there were no close human relatives, you know, 25 million years ago. But fast forward from then, you start seeing hominids, great apes of different types, splitting off into the, uh, the human family. And as, as recently as 20, 25,000 years ago, there were a number of hominid I get mixed up between those bloody words. Hominin species living contemporaneously together in the old world. We have Homo sapiens, us, Homo neanderthalensis, the Neanderthals, which were the, Ice Age, the occupants of Ice Age Europe while Homo sapiens were still in Africa. If you buy the conventional theory, which is slowly having holes poked in it, whole different discussion. Homo uh, denisovensis or denisova, depending on who you speak to, which were a Neanderthal-like species that were discovered in 2010. Uh, Homo hardalbergensis, um, which is the precursor to Neanderthals and sapiens, so it said. Homo floresiensis. Has anyone heard of Homo floresiensis? They're the hobbits that were found in Flores. Yeah, so... Originally, it was thought that it was a mistake, and then they thought it was a, um, a pathological individual, and they found a whole tribe of them, and they're like, no, this is a legitimate species. Homo erectus, red deer cave spe uh, people, and ghost species that we're aware of from genetics and outside the fossil record. So not that long ago, relatively speaking, and recently enough for it to at very least be somewhere in the back of our mythic genetic mind there were other humans around but like different species and we're not we're not designed anymore culturally to know what that would be like can you imagine how strange that would be i mean we have enough trouble with people of different creeds and races and ethnicities and belief systems let alone someone or something that is genetically removed enough but close enough to think, are you human? Is that human? Are they human? I, I think it would do funny things to our minds if we actually had to ask those questions. So, again, if these Sasquatch relict hominid myths are flesh and blood, who, who and what would they be? What's the most likely story? There are four main types commonly described. And I, I don't know if I have to throw the disclaimer out that this is one man's humble opinion and a whole lot of neurotic OCD internet research. I don't claim that this... I, I, don't, I don't want to have to start every sentence with, it is my humble opinion that, but, you know, I can't hang my hat to, on any of these claims. So these four main types. There's the diminutive, diminutive, the little ones that are running around. There's this wild man type that seems to be not so much like a giant, hairy King Kong ape in the forest kind of thing, but very much like a, uh, a human with archaic features, a little more hair, that kind of thing, but muscular. Uh, the Himalayan, or what's been described as the Yeti, which seems to be quite strange and removed from the rest of them. And then the Sasquatch type, the big, big chaps from, that are found all around the place, North America, Asia, here. So the diminutive type, 
in, in folklore, in traditional myth, and I use the word myth respectfully. When I say myth, I don't mean make-believe. I mean something that is both fiction and deep fact at once, and it's the way the human mind and culture tries to language things that are very difficult to language. On Flores and Timor, there's talk of the Ibu Gogo. These little people, little hairy people, they talk about them as if they are a real flesh and blood creature. Uh, in Java, they have the similar, the Oran Pendek. In Australia, the, some indigenous folk call them Jinjari, or different versions of that, although there are so many tribes, nations, and language groups in Australia that there's a different name for them throughout. So there is a described species that fits that description, the Homo floresiensis or similar, because there may have been many different diminutive little relict hominids. Uh, found in an Indonesian island in 2003. At first, it was, they were thought to be 12,000 years old, which completely stumped everyone. And anthropologists had to, they all did a rethink. Any anthropologist worth their salt had to stop and rethink the myths of little people and giants in mythology. It's like, well, maybe they're not just the manifestations of some overactive storytelling primate mind. Maybe there was, if not still, a physical entity out there that's describing. Maybe it's something that was still around relatively recently, so it's still alive in folklore. But then they realised now that these are dated at 50,000 years. These particular fossils, the, the morphology is archaic. People have been arguing over what these are since they found them. Most um, paleoanthropologists thought or think that they are a, a version of Homo erectus that found itself isolated on an island and, and dwarfed as a response. But it's now recognised that the morphology is far more archaic than that and that they most closely resemble Homo habilis, an even more ancient species. And they crossed the Wallace line. They're one of the, one of the very few large mammals or animals to get across the Wallace line from Asia, the, the, what's known as the Sunda Plate in Asia, over the, the, to the Australian side. There's a big divide in um, f uh, fauna types. Lots of big words in this talk. I'm going to wear myself out. Uh, the wild man type. In folklore, this is really strong through the Caucasus region, Russia, Central Asia, I've read there are some absolutely incredible reports out there, and I'll try to make all that available if anyone's interested, but these reports from kind of, you know, Bolshevik Revolution or World War I era reports of, of Russian peasants and their experiences with these, whatever they were, it was just common knowledge that they were around, and they, you know, they say, yeah, you know, we haven't seen one in the last couple of seasons, but they're around, and it's just incredible folklore. Potential species, Neanderthals uh, or Denisovans. These guys, the Neanderthals, were the Ice Age hominid. They, they were, we weren't around. We weren't in Europe. It was just these guys and all the way through to Asia. The Himalayan type, there seems to be something strange going on with these guys. It, it, from the very few reports that there are, they're, they're, these are the most ape-like. And some people suggest from the morphology that's described, they are actually pongoid, which is orangutan family. But again, all that's conjecture and it's very hard to find information. 
the possible species that could be describing that is Gigantopithecus. Has anyone ever heard of Gigantopithecus? Are you serious? Um, it's the biggest species of primate ever described. It's only been described by a little bit of a um, jaw. There's a couple of species, but Gigantopithecus blackii, the biggest one, there was a jaw, and from the jaw they can deduce the skull shape and is a bloody big ape. It was like a three-metre-tall ape. And they're not sure if it was quadruped or biped or what have you, but there are suggestions that these sightings may actually be referring to or describing a relict population of Gigantopithecus or similar. Um, and then the Sasquatch type, pretty famous. There's folklore back from the indigenous Americans all the way through to the early European colonial settlers, all the way through to now. People see these things all the time. Like Again, I keep coming back to that point. It, it, it's, it's crazy making. Like Why so many people see these things and why we don't have a bone or some hair or scat or roadkill or something. Similar to the Australian Yowie or the Chinese Yeren, very big, like eight foot tall. Reports suggest they're nocturnal and they carry a horrible smell around. Some people say they don't smell, some people say they are absolutely pungent. And the gorilla actually has a kind of defense mechanism. When the gorilla, a big male silverback in particular, wants to let you know to go away, he like activates these glands and just will stink the place out. So I think I have that tendency as well. <laughs> um, potential species could describe this uh, Sasquatch type as Paranthropus boisei, or Nutcracker Man. Paranthropus means parallel to human, because it was kind of like a side branch that went off our immediate ancestors, whereas... Um, they're sometimes known as the robust Australopithecines because the Australopithecines, like Lucy, does anyone remember Lucy the skeleton, Australopithecus afarensis? They are considered the immediate predecessors to the Homo genus, the Australopithecines. And Paranthropus is believed to have kind of a divergent lineage that came off from the Australopithecines but they're not gracile, they're robust. And these guys were robust. I mean, look at that skull. He's known as Nutcracker Man. That is known as a sagittal crest, sagittal, sagittarius spear, arrow, pointy. Like a gorilla, they've got huge sagittal crest because that supports muscle. I believe that's the strongest jawbone of any hominid ever described. Could chew through anything. Evidence. So... Apart from this anecdote that I keep going on about, and there really is, there's so much of it. I've personally listened to over 100 reports just from Australia over the last kind of, I think they've been made over the last kind of 10 years, but some reports from like old timers, you know, who were born out bush, middle of nowhere, talking about in like 1920, they saw something. Or the old timers from when the old timer was little would talk about the, you know, the bush gorillas and stuff. It's fascinating. And I'm not saying that I, you know, am a walking lie detector, but through those, you know, dozens upon dozens upon dozens of reports, only two or three times have I been suspicious that this, someone's making something up. So what forensic evidence is there? This is the guy. If any of you leave here interested in this subject and you want to get like one book on it, 
check this guy out, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, an associate professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, an expert on foot morphology and locomotion in monkeys, apes, and hominids. He specializes in the evolution of bipedalism in primates. If ever there was a chap to be the go-to guy for what this phenomenon might be, it's him. I mean, he, an expert in foot morphology and locomotion in primates and the evolution of bipedalism in primates. So, ape feet. There's this thing in ape feet called the mid-tarsal break or the mid-tarsal flex. If everyone... If, you, if, you, you know, if you're shoeless enough to look at your own foot, I suggest you don't look too closely at mine. Uh, there's this kind of lump on the top side of the arch. There's actually something of like a pseudo joint or a vestigial joint there known as the mid-tarsal break. And that's actually a development in, in, in Homo sapiens. Now, monkeys and apes don't have a rigid mid-tarsal fusion. We, we're, it's hard. Our foot's like a plank with an arch in it. These guys actually have a little flexibility here. Do you see that? And that's so that they can use their toes like a gripping mechanism and pivot here. So their leverage point is there. Our leverage point's on the toe. Does that make sense? So here you have it. This is the fused joint here. This is our leverage point because we're marathon machines. That's what we do. It's not that we walk upright. It's the fact that we run and run long distance. And there's really interesting kind of biological and evolutionary mechanisms and dynamic to explain why we do that because we sweat to cool down. We can run long distance and maintain that. We can, we can run down our prey, these big quadrupeds, because we can't run faster than they can sprint, but we can run faster for longer than they can run without cooling down. Because we just chase them, chase them, chase them. They can't cool down because they have to stop to pant to cool down. And that's where we get them. But you still have, in some human feet, there's a kind of pathological throwback to the mid-tarsal flex that you can see here, an example of. So in, I don't know what you'd call it, I guess it's biology, there's a sub-study called ichnology, and it uses, it uses Linnaic binomial nomenclature to describe evidence of a species, not the direct evidence like a bone or a fossil or a dead body, but secondary evidence like footprints, for instance. So these footprint types have been, no, they're now known as Anthropoidopes ameriborealis, which means North American ape foot. And this is the th strange thing that's going on around the world, focused in North America, but also throughout Asia and in Australia as well. These footprints, if someone's faking these footprints, there's a conspiracy. There's an international conspiracy to get together for no apparent reason across you know, decades in time to actually come up with the same morphological patterns in the footprint. So it's one thing to go and kind of get some foam and cut a big foot shape out and walk around 
stamping your feet through the forest or the bush for some reason because you get off on being a hoaxer. But there are actually micro-morphological things going on in these feet that suggest something much more interesting. In particular, this, the sign here of a mid-tarsal break. Now, the human foot doesn't do that. And I'm rushing this subject, of course. This, this chap, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, this is his kettle of fish. He does, like, entire lectures just on this particular subject. Um, but it's been suggested by him that this pattern that you see here running through the casts of the footprints is the result of a mid-tarsal flex that's still maintained and used to uh, carry a very, very heavy weight on a bipedal locomotion. Um, I thought it would be interesting just to have a quick look at the different foot types of different hominids. So A. afarensis, Australopithecus afarensis, that's like Lucy, three and a half million years ago. Notice the lack of arch and the little mid-tarsal flex point. Neanderthal, who, as similar as they were to us, are actually remarkably different in many ways as well. And they were tough, and we'll, we'll get to that. Again, not much of an arch. I used to have a way better image of this, the Yeren footprint. That's as good as I could find. But in other footprints of the Yeren in China, you can see that they're almost identical in morphology to the really common footprint found around the uh, boreal forests of North America. Um, this is the footprint taken from Bluff Creek, from the Patterson-Gimlin film, the classic uh, image of Sasquatch. And this is the human foot. Can you see the really, really obvious arch and the lack of mid-tarsal break? Here we have again. So this is a, this is a known fake foot that was used by a fraud that they found. Next to, so every second one is a real footprint. Yeah, shoot. Are those footprints fresh footprints? They are all plaster casts made of footprints. As to how fresh they were at the time, I'm not sure. I'm sure that would vary. Um, some footprints are remarkable, how clear they are. Ratios, okay, this is really interesting. So man, woman, or child, regardless of, actually not child, but man, woman, adult, regardless of the ethnicity, if human, could be different sizes, but their, their body joints are all the same ratios. We're all the same ratio, right? So our you know, tarsals to our metatarsals to our ulna and to our humerus, it's all the same. As you can see here, so this guy claimed to have faked this. Does any, you recognise this? There's this classic footage of Bigfoot. that I I've got it on here. I hope it'll work for you. Uh, he, this guy, Bob something or other, claimed to be him in a suit. So there's a guy called Thinker Thunker online who goes through this stuff, and he's lined up to show you how human ratios are relatively similar. Next to the humans here, you've got something else. So you've got, this is Patty from the Patterson-Gimlin footage, lined up with admittedly very, very blurry photos of potential apparent Sasquatch-like creatures next to a Neanderthal skeleton. And the ratios line up. Because Neanderthals were different to us in their ratios. And we'll get to that more. 
Here we go. So Neanderthals were actually, as far as we know, the, the closest living genetic relative to Homo sapiens. They had bigger brains than us. We have a, like an average 1,400 cubic centimetre skull. They have around 1,600. But they were shorter than us, but stocky. Like these creatures were so stocky. And I thought I'd throw this in to just show how we don't, we don't know when we're not left with any soft tissue and we're going on <clears throat> skeletal morphology alone. We really do not know what a creature looked like. They could have been, as they're more, more and more commonly depicted, as just kind of stocky, earthy homo sapiens. But they could have been totally different. We just don't know. So here you have another issue. It's not so much just ratios, but angles of the legs and the leg movement, which has been described in a number of different um, Sasquatch videos, which are thought to potentially be leg like legitimate, the real thing, or at least something interesting going on. Because you see the way these people walk. If you watch like the way I walk, don't really move my knees at extreme angles when I'm walking across the flat ground. And even if we're walking on sand or we have big clown shoes on, there's not a really strong angle. See, no, notice on the left, this is that classic footage of Bigfoot from the 60s in California. You see the angle that its leg is throwing up? See how long its arms are in proportion to its legs? Now, the very the year that that footage was released or taken, <clears throat> Planet of the Apes number one came out. And they won awards, they won Oscars for like best costume design because it was just cutting edge, no one had ever seen anything like it. When, when you look at the way the, if, that, if that's a costume, like it's, just, it's incredible at the time, state of the art costume technology, you actually see muscle movement changing and moving underneath the skin. The Patterson-Gimlin film, 67, Bluff Creek, Northern California, Large, hairy, bipedal, ape-like figure with short, silvery brown or dark reddish brown or black hair covering most of its body, including prominent breasts. There's all these really interesting um, details. I'm about to show you like a stabilised version. Once upon a time, it was just like this shaky, like the camera was all over the place. You couldn't see anything. Now the days they can stabilise it zoom in on anything, pause anything. They can change the refractometry of the different light to get out more and more detail. And all, like every year, more and more really amazing uh, detail comes out of this film. I'm just going to let this play for a bit. When I first started looking into this stuff, I thought that could be a, a dude in a monkey suit. And then... <laughs> As I came to appreciate the, the morphology, human morphology and ratio and angle of movement, I really think something's up with that. And I'll point you towards Dr. Jeff Meldrum's breakdown of it because he's the guy, you know, he, he's got all the lingo and he'll, he gives a very, very convincing argument. See the breasts? See the sagittal crest? Look at the head. Often, Sasquatch and Yowri are described as having no neck, and uh, a number of different hominids, like Neanderthals included, have this 
occipital bun at the back of their skull, which suggests very, very high and strong trapezium muscles, which you can see here. Like, if, if that's a guy in a suit, they've gone and padded the trapezium muscles, so there's like a V-like, you know, tapering down from up around here, which would give the impression of having little or no neck. Uh, Minnesota Iceman. I won't speak much on this, but this is a really interesting case where in the 70s, this bloke claimed to have shot a juvenile Sasquatch, and he froze it, snap froze it, like he bought like a commercial freezer and froze it and toured the U.S., going to like malls and stuff and getting people to pay a dollar to see this thing behind a, uh, a curtain. And it was famous, like lots of people claimed to have seen it like when it was on tour. And there's these really interesting ports where they got zoologists and anthropologists in to look at it and the details are just amazing, you know, very, very convincing. So why the, why the lack of forensics potentially? Okay, I'm gonna race through because I probably wanna leave 10 minutes for questions. Homo sapiens, once upon a time, we co-inhabited with all of these potential species. Um, but then we, we did, as far as we understand, there were some climatic events that uh, destabilised the planet, and then we outcompeted them for the prime biomes. If they're out there, if there are relic populations, they're super strong with keen animal instincts and senses. This is... Uh, I believe it's a femur. That's a Neanderthal femur. That's a Homo sapiens femur. The reason, like, you know, like a chimpanzee is so much stronger than a human. You put one adult male chimpanzee alone in the room with the best human fighter, the chimpanzee will just tear the guy apart. They're so much stronger because of their bone density. Because you need, your muscles can only be as strong as your bones will uh, provide the uh, resistance to that torque. If you put chimp muscles on the human skeleton, it would snap the muscle, uh, snap the bone. So that gives you an idea. Look at look at that, like Neanderthal bone versus a human bone. They were way stronger than us, but we have war strategies. We have like we can strategize, we can preempt. We don't know how these things thought or think. We just don't know. But this is the best assumption we can make. That violent cohabitation lasted long enough to culturally and genetically instill the idea of human as predator or at least threat and to you know, make them want to avoid us. They were pushed into the vast expanses of wilderness that we aren't adapted for, the deep forests, swampland, mountain ranges, all the places where the sightings are. We kind of think we're getting our fingers into every little last place of the planet. But as much as we kind of think there are huge expanses of this planet that we don't even have roads in. We don't even fly choppers over. Like if you go on Google Earth and fly over like Russia and Siberia and the Amazon and the Congo Basin and until recently Australia, like really recently in Australia, you know, it was just vast expanses of nothing. And now there's mining exploration and all that. But there are still places, huge expanses of land on this planet that we do, people just don't go. It's too hard for us. Maybe they bury their dead. Potentially. There was a species uh, of human called Homo naledi, which was only found a couple of years ago. Really strange species. They found 15 whole skeletons in the cave, which is incredibly unusual and rare and lucky. And the skeletons were found 
like down here. They had been getting themselves into there somehow. And all of the other potential reasons for doing so, like a predator dragging them in or a flood, you know, taking the skeletons in, were kind of one by one ticked off as being unlikely. So it's assumed that there was ritualistic burial or dis disposing of the dead. And fossils only form in, in very particular circumstances. And many of the places that these sightings occur, like mountains and what have you, fossil and, and tropical or very moist forest environments, fossils don't form very readily. Uh, I won't bother with the panda, but that was a whole story about how the panda was considered myth until Teddy Roosevelt's son went and shot one. And that's, I believe, why Teddy Ro the teddy bear is called the teddy bear because they actually finally got a physical panda. But this thing was known, or there were whispers of it for generations in the West. No one believed they were real until just last century. The billy ape, I'm kind of rushing through now, uh, is now recognised as being an actual species in the pan genus. It, it, it looks pretty much just like a really big chimpanzee, but it, ha it demonstrates different behavioural patterns like nesting on the ground and certain things gorillas do. That was considered myth until very recently. I listened to a Jane Goodall interview and the, and the uh, interviewer asked her if she thinks there might be any as yet unrecognised species of ape. Um, we haven't, and you know, it's so so peculiar. I want to believe there is a creature, which, whether it's a, a yeti, whether it's Sasquatch, whether it's the Yauri in Australia or the wild man in China. Um, so many people, especially indigenous people. And my best story, which I'll tell very quickly, I went to a place in Ecuador, flew over miles and miles of untouched rainforest, landed with a little community of about 30 people, and in the area there were six, seven such little communities, and the only communication between them were these hunters who went from village to village with news, like the old minstrels. And so I asked the translator, next time you see one of these hunters, um, please ask them, if they've seen a monkey without a tail. That's all I said. And so this guy had no idea where I was, why I was asking. And about six months later, I received a reply that four of the hunters had, and they're all separate from each other, uh, they'd all seen monkeys without tails, and they walked upright, and they were about six foot tall. I was going to go through this whole like paleoanthropological exploration of the Australian continent, but um, yeah, there's some very very interesting things happening in Australia as well. Like this is a this is a related but somewhat separate thread of discussion. There are way more anthropological mysteries hidden on this continent than we recognise, and uh, these are just some of the more extreme skulls that have been found in Australia. The Pintubi 1 skull, really interesting because of its super pronounced archaic features. I mean, this is Java man, that's Homo erectus, found in Java, estimated to be a million years old. And see this skull, how it has really archaic features. It's only 200 years old. And this one here, the Wimmera skulls, I mean, if, that, if that's not a cephalic pathology or a fraud, that's 
a complete and utter game changer. Like that, I've never seen a hominid or hominin or any other primate that, that looks like that. There's no forehead whatsoever. Its eyes are immense. In Australia, the Yowie, Yowie, Yahoo, they're kind of derivations of the, the word that only one particular language group used to, over east used to refer these creatures. They used to claim there was two types of them here, that there were little ones and big ones, and you don't want to mess with the big ones. And these are all um, newspaper clippings from the 1800s Regard, you know, discussing the sightings of these hairy Australian apes very quickly. First Nation folklore, whether Australian, North American, I don't know much about the other parts of the world, but North American and Australian Indigenous folklore, they recognise it as, and I don't want to speak for them, but this is my interpretation of what I've read of it, they recognise that it is a flesh and blood biological animal man-like, human-like. They often call it man of the woods, master of the woods. But there's also this kind of metaphysical aspect to them as well. And there's, there's claims that they kind of walk between worlds and they can shift and bleed in and out of different you know, realms, dimensions, what have you, which I find very fascinating. And I have to say, like, I can entertain a lot of pretty strange ideas but I've been very reluctant. I've really held off on going there with this theory, what this phenomenon is, but I can't shake it now that there is something very strange going on about with, with this uh, phenomena. And I actually think it has very, very important and powerful implications for the human species and our sense of self-identity and who we are and where we fit into the scheme of things on this planet. The totemic and symbolic aspect. I, for a long time now, I've kind of I pay attention to things that cross my path. If an animal crosses my path, you know, especially if it's very obvious, it's it's just second nature to me now. I go, oh, that animal, and there was that many of them. I just kind of pay attention to it. And if it happens a number of times, I often feel like there's some kind of message in it for me. I don't trip on it. I don't lose sleep on it. I just pay attention to it. And recently I've been really like trying to pay attention to the, to the totemic and symbolic aspect of this phenomena because I'm dreaming it, you know, and I've always dreamt things. And I, don't, I don't just mean dreams at night. I mean dreaming of it in the sense that it comes to me and it's with me and it hangs out with me all day and it, to the point where it gets annoying and I want it to go away. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what I think it's totemic symbol is. I just thought I'd throw that out there so you could think about it for now. So I've got a couple of minutes of questions if anyone's interested. Okay, I'm, I'm curious about the forensic aspect. I mean, with modern technology, I, I suppose there is not really intention to, to look after them because with modern technology, I'm sure we could be able to do something far more. If we were looking for it, if, if they, the nebulous lay with all the resources in the world, put, if there was something out there, I imagine they could find it, unless there was something more to the story, unless they had other mechanisms and means of evading detection. 
that's a huge discussion in and of itself. And again, yeah, I agree with you, which adds more mystery to this story. Again, this huge gap between all this anecdote. And it's not just like people saying, oh, I was driving 120k an hour and I caught something out the corner of my eye and I think it could have been a hairy animal, like man-shaped. It's some of these stories are incredibly detailed and there are just, they just, there's hundreds and hundreds of them and they go back through different cultural forms all the way back into mythology. I don't know what this phenomena is. And, uh, yeah, that lack of forensic evidence is one of these big flashing neon signs with, with mystery written on it. Oh, don't start me on the... The philosophical tradition, we've read that man came first and the apes evolved from man and that man's been around for millions of years. So we've... Uh, within the Theosophical Society, we've got some uh, differing opinions too. I've recently read um, non-theosophical research that suggests that um, the great apes with their strange power... Oh, I forget the name. It's not quadrupedal, it's not bipedal. The way they kind of get around on their knuckles is actually um, suggestive that they have de-evolved from bipedalism into a like, not true quadrupedalism, but some kind of in-between. Keeping my eyes open and asking lots of questions, but I'm not sure what else I can do. Yeah. I, I've had some strange experiences, but um, I don't know how to quantify that, and I, I, and I don't know how much I will be able to say anything definitively after anyway, because this is the thing, there's a huge subjective element to this. This is one of those subjects that... It, it, it bashes down those boundaries between objective and subjective reality. Uh, so I don't know how you would, I would research that. So, I mean, it's a difficult subject, and people don't realise how big these countries are. Go to Dwelling Up, you'll be lost in 10 minutes. Yeah, anyone, you only have to drive from Margaret River to Nanup along Mullen Road to appreciate how much land there is. I mean, if you were a... If you were a member of an already very small population of very elusive creatures that wanted to evade detection. I mean, the, the thylacines in Nanup, another big gap between anecdote and forensic evidence. I don't understand what's going on because I go speak to old-timers through Nanup and they swear black and blue that it was just common knowledge when they were kids and they used to actually be like government-sanctioned roundups going out and getting them because they kept killing chickens and stuff. And like, but there's not a skin, not a skeleton, not a photograph. Like, I don't understand. Is this mass hallucination? <laughs> really? Like, is it? It could be. Just uh, about when you saw the, the Patterson Gidlin film. Yeah. And the, uh, the Patty, was it? Yeah. You referred to it as Patty. a... Patty. Patty, as a, a, a dude in a monkey suit. Yeah. Like, that, that's what I was thinking of towards before you said that, not in that way, but I mean, I thought it just looked like a human yeah. being, as we know them now, the way it walked and everything. Um, and I, I missed what you might have said about what reason did we have not to think that that's what that was. 
why is that treated like it was something other than the means that necessary to create a suit like that at that time. So, like, if that had been a suit created back then, it would be, it was absolutely cutting edge and it was surpassing the Emmy Award-winning costume design of Planet of the Apes. Everything else I said was me just regurgitating what Dr. Jeff Meldrum has written about it, and I probably didn't, a very, didn't do a very good job, and he does a very good job. Because to remind everyone, he's a professor, focus is the evolution of bipedalism in primates and bipedal locomotion. So, like, he knows, he, he's, you know, he's dissected thousands of people, like cadavers, he knows the human body inside out, he knows gorillas, chimps, he knows the morphology of the Neanderthal and the Australopithecines, and you listen to this guy talk, and, you know, most of it's uh, zoological Latin that I don't understand. The way he, he goes on to describe those ratios... Whomever is walking, if it's not a, the real deal, they've, got, they've gone out of their way to make the arms longer than the legs. They're walking in such a way as, so the, the leg keeps kicking up in a non-human way while the, like, the foot is still projected downward while the knee's up, etc., etc. The sagittal crest, the trapezium. These things may all be f- fakeable, perhaps, but in 1967, I mean, th- at that stage there was still no out-of-Africa theory. We still didn't know much about the lineages of humans and faking things like sagittal crests and trapeziums and body ratios and whatnot uh, seems a little unlikely. It does. This, I try to make this point early on in, in the, the piece we don't have any reference, cultural or biological reference anymore, for something that would be that similar to us but different. I think our mind, I've thought about this a lot, like what would my mind do if I saw a legitimate, whatever they are, walk in front of me? I'd like to watch my mind watching this creature because I would be so curious. It just, it, I think it's inevitable we would categorise it in the human category. We don't have anything else to put it. But now, personally, that I've spent a long time ruminating on these things and watching that movie like a crazy person at 3 a.m. in slow motion, (laughs) I I, I don't see a a Homo sapiens there anymore, personally. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he covers a lot about primitive mythology, doesn't he? Have, but I don't know how far back he goes. I'm not sure if he covers this sort of stuff as well. I've not heard Campbell himself reference anything about this particular phenomena. There are people who have discussed the, that mythopoetic, totemic, symbolic aspect of what does this mean if this kind of symbol, like a Jungian, it's pretty much a Jungian take on it. And I'm very Jungian, I just. Um, what does it mean? If, I mean, if this thing, if you were to sit down on Jung's couch and tell him that you'd have a dream about a big, wild, hairy, ape-like man out in the woods, what do you think Jung would say? I've got a pretty good idea of what I think he would say, but I, it's very personal. Yeah. He'd say, you're nuts. <laughs> tell me about your mother. <laughs>
Just how deep they need to go 